Heavenly Father, as we gather together again on a Wednesday evening, thank you for this point in the middle of the week. It sets a rhythm for some of us. We can gather as a family and study the scriptures together and think about matters perhaps of some difficulty. And as we examine together uh, this evening, uh, the millennium in Revelation 20, we pray once again for uh, your blessing. Help us to uh, be uh, sure about the things where there is certainty and uh, tolerant in those areas where there seems to be a measure of uncertainty. And uh, as we analyze and perhaps disagree, particularly with um, Brothers and sisters in the Lord, uh, we want to be able to do so in a way uh, that is charitable and and loving and kind and that thinks no ill of the person, Uh, but we do want in everything to uh, try to understand uh, the Scriptures. Now bless us then, we pray, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me uh, read from Revelation 20, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon. Uh, The dragon was introduced in chapter 12 of Revelation, that ancient serpent. So drawing a connection then with Genesis 3. Who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So here's the reference to a thousand years. Uh, Satan is bound for a thousand years and then uh, is released for a little while. And then in verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Now, it does appear at least on a surface reading, as though in verses 4 and following, John is uh, seeing something. The verb here is not hearing, but seeing. Then I saw, verse 4, thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those. You might ask a question, I think it's perfectly relevant question to ask. How can you see a soul? Well, first of all, I I think we're meant to understand here uh, that it's not the body that John sees, but the soul. And, And that might infer that what John is seeing in verses 4, 5, and 6 is something that is in heaven. And we allow me to speak of it that way loosely for a second. In verses 1 to 3, he's seeing something that is, as it were, down below. 
And in verses 4, 5, and 6, he's seeing something that is above. The possibility then exists that what he sees below in verses 1 to 3 occurs in the same time frame as what he sees in verses 4, 5, and 6 above. Here's, what, here's what's going on below. Here's what's going on above. They're going on simultaneously in the same period of time. They're just from different perspectives. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. Now, that's important for the book of Revelation. Indeed, uh, perhaps... Um, the singular reason for writing the book of Revelation is to address that very issue. What has happened to those who have been martyred? The cry that comes in Revelation chapter 6 from before the throne, how long before the deaths of those who have been martyred will be avenged? That, that cry comes for justice. And perhaps the reason, therefore, for the writing of the book of Revelation is to address that pastoral question. A pastoral question that's been raised again in our time, like the bombing on Easter Sunday in Pakistan, in Saiwal, uh, that seemed to have been deliberately targeted against Christians. So, in effect, these are Christian martyrs who die simply because they're Christians. Where are they? Where are they now? Where are they tonight? Well, their bodies are dead, but their souls, and, and, and we're making a general statement here about those among them who are believers, the souls of those who are believers are in the presence of Christ. That's an enormously comforting thing in a tragic circumstance to be able to say. So there's, there's an apologetic in the writing of the book of Revelation, but there's also a pastoral reason. My own view is that Revelation is written in the 90s, not in the mid to late 60s. So it's after the destruction of Jerusalem. So, so uh, perhaps during the reign of Emperor Domitian, uh, in which we know for a fact in terms of church history that there were m many, many Christian deaths um, um, when, when Christians were, were put to death in uh, the, the amphitheaters just as they were in the time of Nero uh, in the 60s. I saw thrones then and seated on them uh, were those to whom authority, the authority to judge was Committed also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Right? The same thousand years as in verses 1 to 3, where, where the dragon... The serpent, the devil, Satan, has been put in prison for a thousand years. In the same period, 
The souls of the martyrs are alive and they're before the throne of God. Uh, The question uh, that is asked then is, at what point does this thousand years occur? Does it occur before the second coming of Christ? Or let me put it the other way around. Does the second coming of Christ come before the thousand years or after the thousand years? My own view is that the second coming of Jesus comes after the thousand years because we are in the thousand years. The thousand years is right now. There's a debate and and an important debate as to whether when Satan is released uh, in verse 3 for a little while, whether that period just prior to the second coming is a period of intense conflict. And particularly conflict against Christianity and against the truth, where there might be an appearance of an antichrist figure or a man of, uh, a man of sin uh, figure. One's a Paul term, one's a John term. Right, so the perspective, the perspective that we are uh, engaging uh, here, he was asking me a question earlier, um, The perspective that we are engaging here is that this thousand years, the millennium, from the Latin, mille for a thousand, the millennium, we are in the millennium right now and have been since Pentecost. Uh, But we haven't even begun to think about premillennialism and I need to... I need to get going. Uh, let me talk about premillennialism. Premillennialism is the view that the second coming of Jesus will occur before the millennium. So Jesus will come again and the millennium will begin. The thousand years will begin. However that thousand years is interpreted and, and some interpret it figuratively and some interpret it quite literally. But the point of premillennialism is that the second coming is pre, before the millennium. In other words, the millennium hasn't started. The millennium is still in the future. And before that millennium even begins, Jesus will come again. Uh, It's also known as Chiliism, uh, this time not from the Latin, but from the Greek, uh, from uh, Chilioi, Chilioi, uh, in in Greek, Chiliism. Uh, For some reason, when this view is being talked about in the early centuries, uh, historians and theologians tend to refer to it as Chiliism, uh, but when they talk about the same view, Uh, as it appears, say, in the 19th century or the 20th century, then it's typically referred to as premillennialism, but it's it's the same view. Now, it's often claimed, and it's especially claimed, of course, by premillennialists, that the first Christians, the Christians of the first century in particular, were premillennial in their understanding. And uh, a a famous uh, historian... Uh, from a certain point of view, Leroy Froome, uh, known especially in Seventh-day Adventist uh, circles, a 19th century author, uh, wrote uh, a definitive volume from Seventh-day Adventist perspective called Prophetic Faith 
uh, of our fathers, and he writes, uh, the early church was distinctively premillennialist uh, in her cherished expectation of Christ's second advent. Well, of course, you'd expect him to say that he's a premillennialist, so he's, he's, he's saying that the Christians of the first century uh, were premillennial in their understanding. Second coming would come before uh, the millennium. Now, there is some truth in it. Uh, Justin Martyr, uh, who spans into the second uh, century uh, in his dialogue with uh, Trifo, uh, has a distinctively premillennial um, understanding. Uh, and uh, before him, uh, Papias of Hierapolis, uh, late first, early second century, uh, and fragments of his work uh, still remain in the writings of Irenaeus and Eusebius, uh, the historian. Uh, so there is some truth to that, that early uh, Christians uh, were pre-millennial. And several reasons are given to explain why they might have been premillennial. Uh, one, the expectation of the Jews. And you see that a little in Acts chapter 1, at the time of just before Jesus' ascension, uh, they ask that question uh, as to whether it is now that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Uh, so, um, an expectation that because Jesus has returned from the dead as a resurrection, then will follow a certain um, expectation with regard to Israel as, um, as, a, as an ethnic body and as a political body. So there would be the return. Jesus' resurrection would be viewed then as the return and then an ex a Jewish expectation of a kingdom, specifically a kingdom relating to Israel, that follows after, um, after that return. So that, that question looks and sounds a, a little like a premillennial question. Uh, the problem is that the question is entirely wrong. Uh, John Calvin made that famous comment in his commentary uh, on Acts that there are as many errors in the question as there are words. Um, a second, uh, perhaps, reason to explain uh, first century belief with regard to the millennium uh, is the determinative pattern of creation, six days followed by one, and since Peter says in Second Peter three eight that a day is as a thousand years, the expectation arose in the first century and continued for a while that the world would last for six thousand years, followed by a one thousand year millennial reign. And it's not then surprising that Revelation 20 would seem to confirm that view and expectation. Now, there is also a strong objection 
that emerges through Chileism, to a premillennial uh, view that the second coming would come first and then would follow the millennium. In other words, that the, since the second coming hasn't happened, uh, the, the millennium hasn't yet happened. And um, that objection arose, uh, and I'm, we won't go into all the details now, but just, just to give the general parameters of it, um, Firstly, because of the association of premillennialism and Chileism, especially with the Montanists, the Montanists, to, to uh, oversimplify, but the, Montel- Mon- the Montanists were the Pentecostals uh, of the early church. They believed in continuing revelation and continuing uh, prophecy uh, and so on. And Montanism eventually was given... Uh, a sort of death blow, particularly by Augustine. Uh, secondly, Gaius the Presbyter's rejection of Revelation as a work written by Corinthus. In other words, that, that um, there was a, a decided sort of negativity towards millennialism because of a, a rising antipathy in certain quarters to the book of Revelation as a whole uh, because of its odd nature, because of its apocalyptic uh, writing and suggestions that were made uh, in certain quarters um, that Revelation wasn't written by John but uh, written by uh, this man Corinthus. In North Africa, the Alexandrian school Uh, Dionysius of Alexandria in the late 3rd century makes the argument that Revelation was written by another John besides the Apostle uh, and so on. Uh, And then a major denial of uh, Chileism uh, by uh, Augustine. And this by far and away is probably the most important historically. Uh, The other factors uh, just add, I think, to the general dis-ease with any sort of talk about the millennium, uh, but, it is, uh, but it is Augustine uh, or Augustine, uh, which, however we want to say that, uh, Augustine, um, who gave the major blow, the death blow to uh, Chileism in uh, his famous book, The City of uh, God, where he confesses that he once held to Chileism, but now considers that view too worldly. Too worldly in the sense that at the heart of premillennialism is the expectation that Jesus is going to come again and the kingdom that's going to take a thousand years, that kingdom is essentially a kingdom here on earth. Right? So, so it focuses the expectation on something that's going to happen on earth. Whereas the whole argument of the city of God was that there's the city of this world and and the Christian concern, the concern of the believer ought to be with another city entirely and not a, an earthly city, but a heavenly city, right? So that's the main argument. That's the main polemic of the city of God. So Chileism was seen to be almost in opposition to the main thesis of the city of God, that here we have no continuing city, but we seek one which is to come, whose builder and maker of, is God. And, and we ought to be making a pilgrimage towards the heavenly city, not towards an earthly city or an, particularly an earthly Jerusalem in, in Palestine, which Chileism uh, essentially 
uh, a premillennial view. What, what, what is this kingdom that Jesus is going to uh, engage in after he has come again, but a kingdom that is in this world with perhaps Jerusalem as its core and center and perhaps Jesus actually taking up a throne in uh, Jerusalem. Well, uh, that's interesting historically, and some of you are historians, and you're you're going to spend the rest of the evening now searching through uh, Augustine. Uh, But but Augustine here does have a colossal impact uh, on premillennialism, to the extent, I think, that we can say, generally speaking, that Chileism more or less dies, interestingly, for a thousand years. Uh, and only rises again in post-Reformation circles. Uh, It's actually in the late 16th, early 17th century before Chileism actually reappears again. Fascinating that it actually dies for almost a thousand years. Uh, So it returns to favor uh, sometime um, at around the Reformation, uh, a man by the name of William uh, Guillaume Postel, uh, a cosmic feminist who believed he had been reborn as the Shekinah, the Holy Spirit, and proclaimed a restoration of the millennium in 1556. Well, you know, this, hard, this guy hardly gives you the, the, the sort of confidence. Uh, and if you are premillennial, and we do have folk in the church who are premillennial, and, and for all I know, we may have folk on our, on our pastoral staff who are uh, and, and ministry staff who, who are premillennial. And I do think that, in essence, premillennialism is a view that uh, somebody who subscribes to Westminster Confession can hold to. Uh, I don't think the Westminster Confession uh, outlaws uh, premillennialism uh, as something that is unconfessional. Uh, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue... I'm a diehard amillennialist. So all the cards on the table here from the, from the very beginning. Um, but it is, it is a somewhat embarrassing, difficult historical fact that in the uh, 16th century, the, the one who resurrects uh, Chileism uh, is this man, Guillaume Postel. Now, having said that, and, and that, that's, that's, uh, that does certainly need to be said historically, But now I need also to say that there is a mainstream, um, biblically uh, orthodox uh, defense of Chileism that arises uh, in uh, the guise of Johann Heinrich Alsted, who lives up until 1638. Now, try and hold in your head uh, the Westminster Assembly uh, convening in 1643, just five years after this man dies. Uh, this man uh, writes a book uh, in Latin. It's translated into English in 1643, the year of the assembly, uh, as, and it's called The Beloved City. And along with it, another uh, influential uh, exponent of Chileism, uh, Joseph Mead, again, who dies in 16. Uh, 38, uh, uh, Apocalyptica, uh, written in 1627. Now, uh, an interesting little sidebar note uh, for us as Presbyterians. Uh, during, the, uh, during the Westminster Assembly, uh, which of course consisted of uh, Presbyterians and Independents and Episcopalians, 
Uh, and and I, I would suggest uh, that half of them were Chileists uh, in some form. Half of them were premillennial in some form or another. Uh, there is an interesting little, little note in the minutes of the assembly, and the minutes of the assembly have been restudied of late. Uh, uh, Chad Van Dixorn is kind of the world authority these days on uh, the, the Westminster Assembly, uh, having uncovered uh, during his doctoral work uh, uh, trunk loads full of uh, minutes and stuff which hadn't been uh, these trunks hadn't been opened since they had been sealed sometime in the 17th century. It was, uh, I mean, for somebody doing a doctoral dissertation, this is, this is like, like the, the crock of gold. Uh, and um, uh, he has since uh, published uh, his findings in five uh, volumes. Uh, but one of the interesting sidebars here is that the members of the assembly were chastised on several occasions by the chairman, the prolocutor of the assembly, William Twist, for bringing books into... You know how it is at, at meetings. President, I remember at faculty, seminary faculty meetings, people where we were supposed to be discussing business, you know, several faculty members would bring in a book. It, it was almost like saying, whatever's going on here is not important, but my book is far more important. Um, well, the, the chairman of the assembly would chastise um, members of the assembly for bringing in the books of Alsted and Mead, uh, because they were reading them. They were fascinated about, well, about the millennium. Uh, and and uh, eschatological issues were as, uh, probably fascinating in the 17th century as, as, as they seemingly are uh, today. Uh, but these two books by Alsted and Mead had a considerable impact on... Uh, the discussions of the Westminster um, divines. And there's an Irishman, Mark, do you remember his name? Uh, he lectures in Trinity in Dublin, and I can't remember his name, but uh, who has written uh, a, a lot about Puritan views of the millennium, and, and uh, he, he corroborates uh, this view, and I still can't remember his name. But, but if you... If you really do want to know his name, I can tell you later. Uh, but um, uh, uh, premillennialism as a, as a view, I think, held by, I'm going to say, half of the members uh, of the assembly. It, it sort of explains why the Westminster Confession is so bland about matters of eschatology. Uh, the final two chapters are, are almost, they, they say absolutely nothing at all about the millennium, for example. And the reason for that is because they couldn't have ever come to an agreement about the millennium. It was a non-starter. There was absolutely no point in them trying to make a statement as to whether they were premillennial. And actually in this 17th century, they were either premillennial or post-millennial. The, the, the term our millennial would not have been uh, vogue in, in the 17th century. Uh, later, uh, I'm saying here number, point number three, later in the wake of the French Revolution, uh, prophetic interest increased and led uh, to the Albury Park Prophetic Conference in the 1820s. Uh, interestingly, Edward Irving, Edward Irving is the guy that we most remember for the emergence of the modern Pentecostal movement. Um, and Edward Irving attended and preached a series of 
millenarian sermons at St. Cuthbert's in Edinburgh, which influenced uh, no less uh, uh, Presbyterian than Horatius Bonner, uh, the Bonner brothers. Uh, We sing Horatius Bonner's hymns, for example, in Trinity Hymnal. Uh, And as a result of Edward Irving's sermons, I think, he became an advocate of uh, premillennial thought. And Irving translated the Spanish uh, Chileist and Jesuit uh, Manuel Lacunza, uh, The Coming of Messiah in Glory and Majesty. Uh, We uh, then get into the 19th century and, and things then get more complicated because the premillennialists divide, split into two, become on the one hand the dispensationalists, uh, which is a far more radical and biblically, un- from, from, from a reformed point of view and a con- Westminster Confession point of view, a wholly unacceptable view uh, held by Darby and eventually the Schofield uh, Reference Bible and, and um, the a seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, begins on the, on the back of all of that. That and the track, the continuing track of historic premillennialism. Um, and perhaps some of the great names of the 20th century, but for some reason a, 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 the, the majority, I think, of New Testament scholars up until recently, up until the last, say, 25 years, uh, were, I think, premillennial. Uh, George Eldon Ladd uh, would, would be perhaps the leading figure uh, in, in that. But a lot, of, uh, a lot of professors who studied at seminary in the 60s or 70s uh, would, uh, under some of the leading New Testament scholars, uh, uh, conservative uh, Bible-believing scholars of the 20th century, would have certainly uh, uh, heard a premillennial understanding of the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, Luke 21, uh, Matthew 24, 25, and, and, and Revelation 20, for example. Now, the uh, premillennial view of Revelation 20 uh, essentially consists of three presuppositions. Now, I need you, I know it's warm in here, humid, we're saving money for 1400 Lady Street, we're trying to reach 8.1 million uh, we have just phenomenal news, by the way, about that, and uh, we're going to give you that, but uh, we, are, we are very close to reaching our target. It's, uh, it's, um, it's uh, j- just a wonderful, wonderful answer to prayer. Uh, I don't want to get sidetracked. Uh, I, I, what I need you to do is, is batten down the hatches of your minds here and get into Revelation 20 uh, and three basic presuppositions uh, in reading Revelation 20. Uh, Number one, that Revelation 19 and 20 is one continuous narrative unfolding along a historical timeline. So chapter 19 describes for us the beast and the false prophet, and then chapter 20 then describes and this is the important thing from a premillennial point of view, in historical sequence, the defeat of the one who lies behind them, namely Satan. 
in verse uh, 7, uh, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for uh, battle from uh, Gog and Magog from Ezekiel. Uh, 38 and 39, uh, and so on. Uh, This victory, then, is represented as taking place in two stages, separated by a thousand years. At the beginning of it, Christ will bind Satan, raise his people, and reign with them for a thousand years. Where is he going to reign with them? And the answer is probably in Jerusalem. That seems to be a logical uh, sort of answer to that. And then at the end of it, Satan will be set free, finally overcome, and the general resurrection will take place. The the crucial thing uh, is the historical, sequential nature of the understanding of Revelation 19 and uh, and 20. Uh, Presupposition number two is that Revelation 20 and verse 4 is interpreted as a physical resurrection. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those, not not the disembodied souls. As I was suggesting earlier, they have physically died. Their bodies have been buried if there were any bodies to bury, and some of them were eaten, so there were no bodies to bury. Um, and, and what John sees is the disembodied soul in heaven. Uh, the, the presupposition of premillennialism is that verse 4 is to be interpreted as a physical resurrection. And since verse 6 mentions a second death, implies that there are two deaths, that the two resurrections Um, and two deaths and two resurrections in view. The first resurrection is that of the elect, and the second, uh, the general uh, uh, resurrection. So uh, uh, not as in our millennialism, Jesus will come again, everyone will rise except those who are still alive, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, but the elect and the non-elect will arise at the same time. Premillennialism uh, understands two separate resurrections, a resurrection of the elect and followed later by, uh, by a second and general uh, uh, resurrection. And then a third uh, presupposition of premillennialism is that Revelation 22 and 3, he sees the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Uh, Revelation 22 and 3 tells us that Satan is seized and bound in such a way that he can no longer deceive the nations. And for premillennialists, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting the exclamation mark here, clearly, at least to premillennialists, uh, this is something that hasn't yet taken place. Because clearly they will say, 
And, and it is a very strong argument. Just look at the world today. How can Satan be bound? How can he not be deceiving the nations anymore when the nations are deceived? Look at the Middle East. Look at the rise of uh, Islam in our time. Uh, look at Europe. Right? And, and I get emails probably every other day from someone uh, about the decline of Christianity in Europe. And, and how can, uh, therefore, how can the devil be bound and, and in a pit and not deceiving the nations anymore? Remember what I suggested when we did the millennium together, when we, when we were looking at Revelation 20 together, we said that, that the binding of Satan and the not deceiving of the nations was the apocalyptic description of what happened at Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? The nations of the world were gathered at Pentecost. Then what happened? The gospel left Jerusalem into Judea, to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So that at the end of the Acts of the Apostles, you've got in effect the gospel reaching the then known world with Paul ambitious to go even further to Spain stories, I don't believe them, stories that he went as far as Britain uh, preaching the, the gospel uh, and so on. So, um, uh, in, in every nation of the world, uh, fascinating to me that we have listeners to our Sunday services online in places like Iran and Saudi Arabia. Who are these people? Missionaries, perhaps. Perhaps civil servants uh, who are there with visas. Um, but um, maybe that doesn't convince. You know, that's, that's, where, that's where you have to make a, an evaluation and a decision. Is, is that the gospel reaching the nations of the world? You can go to New Zealand and you can find a gospel church. You can go to China and you can find hundreds of thousands of gospel churches. They're small, but they're gospel churches. And there are millions of people who believe in Christ in, uh, in uh, China, especially in the underground uh, churches. You can go to India or Pakistan uh, and uh, probably brothers and sisters were, were s slaughtered on, on uh, Easter morning in a, in a bomb, right? So, so that's the perspective. For the premillennialist, the world is a dark place and getting darker, and Satan is alive and well and flourishing in the nations of the world. So how could he possibly be, be put in a, in a, in a, in a pit, um, uh, and, and, and that pit shut and sealed over so that he might not deceive the nations uh, any longer. That would be, and since my time is going here, I can't, I can't go any further. Um, I won't go into the evaluation of 1 Corinthians 15. But, but that would be a perspectival issue as to whether or not you can accept, uh, a, uh, an, uh, say, an amillennial view or a premillennial view. Uh, of um, uh, of uh, Revelation 20. Uh, is Satan bound tonight? 
Is there evidence uh, that he is no longer in control of the nations as he was in the Old Testament period? You know, in the Old Testament period, the only place that you were likely to hear uh, the truth of the gospel uh, would be in a small portion of land in Israel, in Palestine, in, in the southern kingdom of Judah, in the environs of uh, Jerusalem and not much uh, further. Um, uh, yes, there were a few proselytes, but there were very few. Right? So it's that perspective of what happened at Pentecost. Uh, was Satan bound his clutches, his control over the nations of the world uh, was curtailed, severely curtailed, to allow the gospel now to, to go to all the world as the brickies over here, hands in the air, the brickies over here right, are waiting to go to Spain, waiting for dollars to go to Spain. They need support to go to Spain. Uh, but Spain, and, uh, and the fact that we can speak of five, four, five families, missionary families working in Spain. Six. Okay, I was prepared to go less, but, but up is good. It uh, bolsters my argument. Uh, six families, uh, uh, ARP families, uh, working in uh, Spain. That, 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 would be, that, that would be part of the argument why one would go in an amillennial or a premillennial direction with Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3. Well, there's a whole lot more, and uh, there's a view of 1 Corinthians 15, 23 to 26, which I completely avoided when we examined this in, uh, on Sunday mornings in the last four weeks. Didn't, didn't want to get sidetracked into millennial issues uh, when we were dealing with the resurrection. But there is a, an interpretation of uh, Revelation 20 uh, through 28, that middle portion of First Corinthians, uh, which is also decisive for premillennials, and uh, that's your homework. I'll ask you about it next week. No, not next week, because next week we have uh, a special guest uh, and a special evening, and uh, do make every effort to come because you will enjoy it immensely. Uh, John uh, Blanchard. Here in America, he tends to be called Blanchard. Uh, John Blanchard, John Blanchard, uh, is now, uh, he's now in his early 80s uh, and going strong. Uh, he is a well-known, internationally known uh, author and pastor and apologist. And his book, uh, Right with God, uh, and uh, the smaller book that was based on Right with God, Ultimate Questions, uh, something in the region of 40 million copies of it uh, have been either sold or given away all over the world in 60 different uh, languages. Uh, he's been a dear friend of mine uh, at least for the last 30-plus years, uh, and uh, I, I'm thrilled that I'm going to be able to see him again next week. But he's in town. Uh, he is uh, spending some vacation in Kiowa, is that how you pronounce it? Kiowa Island. I suggested that we'd all go there, and he could give his lecture there, uh, but no, he wants to come here. Uh, but he'll be going back to Kiowa Island immediately after uh, uh, Centerpoint next week. But he's going to give a, a lecture, 
uh, on, uh, from an apologetics point of view next uh, Wednesday evening. I would suggest that if you have someone in your family or a neighbor or a friend and you're currently sort of witnessing to them and you'd like them to come and hear an apologetic for Christianity, uh, this would be a, a, a relatively neutral setting in which to do that. Uh, and I think that would be a wonderful opportunity if you've got somebody, uh, bring them next Wednesday evening and uh, they'll hear a, a, an apologetic defense uh, of the gospel from uh, one of the most capable apologists that I, that I know of. That's next Wednesday evening. Same time, same place. And there'll be food to begin with. Uh, it'll be a, a post-food lecture, not a pre-food but post food. The food will be pre. Yes. Let's pray together. Father, uh, some of our dearest friends in all the world uh, hold perhaps different views to us on uh, these matters, and uh, that's true right here and in this room. And uh, we want to be able to discuss these things as brothers and sisters. Uh, these are not matters we think that are essential to the gospel. We can believe either of these views, a premillennial view or an amillennial view, and still be assured uh, that we will go to heaven if we trust in the Lord Jesus and in him alone for our salvation. Uh, but we ask as we think through and try to make some uh, steps and decisions uh, on these matters, pray that you will continue to instruct us and guide us and direct us and help us to uh, learn with charitableness, uh, we pray and we ask it uh, all in Jesus' name. Amen.